0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: So at one point in my conversation with Pink, like the pop star Pink, she reminds you that she's been around for a long, long time. That she came out with her first records the same time Britney Spears did or Jessica Simpson did or, or Mandy Moore did. How do you last that long in an industry that wants to kick you out as soon as possible Pink has some ideas. That's coming up. Plus, Sarah Gadden tells me that when she's on stage doing this play called Yerma, which is about a woman trying and failing to conceive a child, she notices that nights that the audiences are filled with men, the reaction from the crowd is completely different from nights that the audiences are filled with women. She'll tell you exactly what she noticed. Sarah Gaddon, coming up. My name is Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I think of all the popular disciplines, like uh, books or TV or film. I mean, this is this is just my opinion. Pop music might have the shortest career lifespan. Like it's almost impossible to have any success at all. And if you're lucky enough to have a hit, you might be lucky enough to get a tour with your name on it. And then, I mean, this is something that a lot of women who have come up in pop music have talked to me about. When you turn a certain age in the industry, you're shoved out and room is made for somebody new. Pink is an artist who has managed to keep going, has managed to maintain an audience and make hit records for decades. I mean, starting out with songs like this one.
2: I'm up, so you get this I'm
1: I can picture myself running around my junior high gym just doing laps listening to that song. Pink's real name is Alicia Moore. She's won three Grammys, she has four Billboard number ones, and she has an incredible voice. She does these amazing live shows where she might sing on a trapeze. 25-odd years into her career, I think the world is starting to recognize Pink as a generation-defining performer. Her brand-new album is called Trustfall, and it's out now. I got to talk to Pink about mortality, about longevity, about that whole generation-defining artist thing. She uh, has some thoughts on it. Take a listen to this. How are you?
3: Oh, hi. What an introduction. My God. That was really me?
1: Yeah. Well, that's it. That's all, uh, that's
3: all like, yeah, I'm more like a rash. I just kind of don't go away.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's less about being a generation defining artists. It's more about being like a lesion that you can't seem to, uh, you can't seem to saw off.
3: That's it. That's me.
1: Uh, nice to meet you. I love the record.
3: Thank you. I'm so relieved.
1: <laughs> in In all, in all honesty, read the lesion and rash. Could you have ever have predicted that you would have lasted this long in, in this music?
3: No, but I wasn't really thinking that way. I don't think, I don't think anybody does. I mean, I don't know what people think. Who knows? I just know my weird brain. But I think I was, I would have probably been voted least likely. By who? Um, Most. <laughs> like by, by, by
1: in your hometown or like people in the industry that came or musicians that came out at the time?
3: Both. All of the above. All of those boxes. Um but I was also voted most likely to be behind bars in 10 years for my (laughs) um, 10th grade yearbook. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's been a wild ride and I'm, but here's the thing. I'm really, 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 really hardworking. And I also have a lot to say.
1: Why, what did you find yourself saying on this record?
3: Oh my Lord. The beautiful thing about this album is how long I took to make it. And when that happens, you know, your as an as a songwriter your favorite song is the last one you wrote because it's new and it's you know it's what you wanted to say most recently but then once you have the songs long enough some just kind of fall by the wayside and that's it's more of um uh edit, editing process i guess and i this album was curated over 3 years and a lot happened in all of our lives Besides the pandemic, I lost my father. I lost one of my dearest friends eight months later. I'm still parenting young children. I'm a wife of seventeen years. I have friendships and relationships and responsibilities, and you know, my mom is getting older and so many things happening and I, I write about what's happening in my life. I think each album for me is a is a chapter of where I was right then. I could never write Misunderstood say, because I'm not a 17-year-old punk anymore. Is When
1: I Get There,
3: the first track off the record, is that about your dad? For me, yeah, but I've lost a lot of people in my life. It could be about any of them. And I, I like, I, I wonder where they go. Like my little boy walks around the kitchen island and he he goes, hey, Grandpa." so that's cool. Because he doesn't know what to say, but I always tell him, like, you can talk to your ancestors and your angels and they're always listening. And so he's just literally walking around the kitchen talking to grandpa. Mm -hmm. And the idea that he's out there somewhere watching over us is a nice idea.
2: I think of you when I think about forever I hear a joke and I know you would have told it better I think of you out of the blue when I'm watching a movie that you'd hate you'd say it you would never want to hesitate
3: I didn't write that song actually that song was a gift it um it sent um David Hodges and Amy Wadge sent me that song after my dad passed away Oh yeah and it just felt like such a balm I couldn't I couldn't write that song I haven't unpacked that suitcase yet
1: I saw a great video of, I think it was you singing a song he had written for you. Yeah. Or not written for you, but he had written about his time in the service.
3: Yeah, he could, man, he could finger pick with the best of them. He could play the hell out of a guitar.
1: Did he have any aspirations to do that professionally?
3: He he did. He always wanted to be a rock star. My brother and I lived out both of his dreams. My dad always wanted to be, uh, my dad was what he called a grunt in the Air Force, just enlisted. And my brother became a lieutenant colonel before he retired. And, and uh, that was one of my dad's dreams. And and to be a rock star, he actually sang in a quartet in the Air Force.
1: He sang in like a vocal quartet in, in the Air Force? Uh, yeah. So then this guy who has these big dreams of being a, a rock star, who, you know, writes songs and, you know, lives through something very, very tough, gets to see his daughter live that very rare life. Not many people get to do that at all. He, the, she, he gets to see his daughter live that very, very rare life that he had sort of imagined for himself.
3: That, mm-hmm. you, you
1: must feel something from that.
3: I mean, relationships are complicated. My dad was a very complicated man. Yeah. And he had a really hard life. He had a really shit deck of cards dealt to him. Yeah. Yeah, he was just a... I think relationships are just really complicated. I don't care who you are or how much money you have or where you're from, relationships are complicated. And, you know, that's kind of... I don't know how else to explain it. I think he was happy for me. I'm sure he was proud of me.
1: I'm sure he was too. Um, it's a It's a, It's a. a beautiful record. I want to talk about another song on the record. I want to talk about um, Never Not Gonna Dance Again. Uh, Which is the single, I think, which is the lead single off the
2: record.
1: You wrote that with um, Max Martin and Shellback. Yes. So Max Martin, for people who don't know, is one of the greatest sort of like hit makers in history. Um, he has written big songs for your Katy Perry, Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears and all that, and Pink, sort of guy who lives in his studio over in Sweden, doesn't do any press, doesn't really talk to people very much, a very mysterious guy. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about how that song came about, and just a little bit about your relationship with this guy over the years.
3: Max and I did not want to work together, um, (laughs) in the beginning, uh we were kind of put together just to see what happens by the record company. And when I met him, I brought three bottles of wine to the first session and he goes, well, what kind of a song do you want to write? And I go, I want to write a song about death just to kind of screw with him. And then we wrote who knew and first day and polished off one of those bottles. And he really surprised me because he's actually a closet punk rocker and yeah. he's his knowledge of music is so vast, and he's such a genius. And he pulls from every genre, like I do. And he's funny as hell. He's got the driest, awesomest sense of humor. Very charming, and a good guy. He's like a good guy. And we've worked together over the years. He was he was there. I I flew to Sweden. Um, while I was possibly getting a divorce from my husband, and I was one of a, it was a really dark time in my life. And you know, we wrote "So What" the first day. And then we wrote "I Don't Believe You." And then we wrote "Please Don't Leave Me." And we've written all of these beautiful songs together that have marked serious moments in my life. So when I'm sitting at home during the pandemic, I thought about all, you know, when your kid gets sick or you lose a parent, those are times when life really gets distilled down into what matters. (laughs) Who am I? Who do I want to be? What's stopping me? And I thought about times like when my kids want to play with me on the beach and I'm feeling insecure about my body and I, Missed the opportunity to make a memory with them because I was stuck in my head. Or, you know, much more surface level, like you're out and the song comes on and you want to get up and be free and dance, but you're you're not the best dancer. And kind of just, we waste so many moments not doing what we want to do because we live in our heads and we worry about shit that doesn't matter. And so I called him and I said, hey, I want to write a song. I want it to be called never going to not dance again, because if the world is ending and we're sliding sideways off our axis, then I want to, I want to dance. I want to dance. Here's a shot. I want to dance. And I said, no pressure, but it has to be the best song we've ever written.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think you've learned anything? Are you a changed person coming out of this, uh, this time uh, away?
3: yeah for sure i mean i think losing a parent is a suitcase that you will unpack for the rest of your life especially like i said relationships are complicated yeah um but yeah i mean i i'm learning every day and i'm learning real solid lessons and i'm also learning that we're there's so many batshit people in the world just super psycho And I'm learning that I do have a pretty sick sense of humor that I am able to fall back on most of the time. Why do you think
1: you've been able to, um, survive in an industry that doesn't always allow for that kind of survival?
3: Um, well, I kind of did things a little differently than most of the other artists out there, um, I realized very early that credit is not just given easily to young female pop stars. Um, So I'm going to pound the pavement. I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to stay humble and I'm going to pound the pavement all over the world. And I'm going to become the best performer I can be because that's the part I love that and writing songs, the create the creative process and performance is my favorite thing in the world. So I'm going to let everybody else sell perfume and be popular and be pretty. And I'm going to go work my ass off. And I did it. And I I did it backwards. So I don't like, whereas a lot of people have to put an album out to sell tickets. I don't have to do that. Like I can just go on tour yeah. because, because I've worked my ass off at being able to play stadiums, arenas, or clubs. And I've done it for 20 years, and I love it. I love it. I love all of those places, clubs, arenas. So maybe it's because I did it backwards. Maybe it's because I'm relentless, and maybe it's because I have an open dialogue with the people that are listening to my music.
1: An open dialogue, how do you mean?
3: I mean, I'm I'm being really, really vulnerable and open and honest, and I'm talking about my... I'm not trying to write like the next bop. I'm I'm trying to save my soul.
1: <laughs> it, it, what I'm hearing there is that like um, pop music and pop stardom can be so ephemeral that it can go away if you just rely on someone else to, if, if you just re- release a song and hope that things are going to work out and get your picture taken and hope that things are going to be fine. And hopefully you can have another song. You realize early that you have to, um, not prove yourself, but you have to have something else. You have to get out there and work as hard as you possibly can and get on the road and offer people like the greatest live show they could ever experience. In sort of like a Springsteenian model here to be like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who you are. You are going to have a relationship with me. You are going to have a relationship with this music. So therefore I can stick a, stick around um, a, a little bit longer than everybody else. That's a powerful thing to learn early on, you know.
3: Well, I had the best manager that ever did it. I mean, Roger Davies manages Cher, Joe Cocker, Sade, Tina Turner, Janet Jackson. I mean, these are some of the best live acts that have ever been. And he knows touring. And that was what we did.
1: So he impressed to you that like, hey, this thing can all go away. But if you if you do a great live show, this they can't take this from you.
3: Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and I love it too. You have to love it. It's too hard to do if you don't love it.
1: Do you find yourself giving that kind of advice to young performers now?
3: No. No. I try not to give advice. I hate people that give advice.
1: What do you mean you hate? What do you mean you hate people who give advice is like good. Like I it's nice to get
3: advice from people? I mean, I I've given advice on how to tour with babies cuz it's impossible and I did it somehow, but I don't think that – I grew up – I came into the music business when it was a completely different business. I don't know what to tell anybody now. I don't know how this shit works. I'm already, like, over here doing this. I don't know how you do what you do. I don't – I'm not on TikTok. Like, I don't know what to tell you.
1: <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. is the perfect distillation of my feelings <laughs> these days as well. However, <laughs> however, I don't know. I'm Not that I don't buy it, but I kind of don't buy it because I feel like, like to last as long as you have, even just to say that to me, like – you know tour and have something you can back up is is something you know
3: yeah i guess i'm just not around people either i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i give my daughter a lot of advice and she's over it
1: <laughs> yeah she doesn't listen to you
3: she does i mean she half listens i'm not sure if she's listening
1: um we ha- we have to go which is a bummer cuz i'm i'm enjoying talking to you me too um, well,
3: if you're friends with Dallas, then we all have to get together and have his favorite Nika coffee grain whiskey.
1: Dallas Green, uh, City in Color, of course. Pink and, and, and Dallas put out a record together a, a little while ago that I really loved. Years ago now. When are, you, are you guys going to do another one of Ten those? Years ago.
3: You should do another one of those. I keep telling him that, but he's he's all over the place. He's never not on the road. Never.
1: I'm, I'm Like yourself. Um, I want to go out on a song from the record that, like, we're going to get push to play the singles and all that stuff. But I wonder if there's a song on the record that's particularly meaningful to you that maybe isn't going to get the love of the other songs.
3: Mm, My goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Uh, I would say either Turbulence or Lost Cause. Why? Lost Cause is just, it's, it's, there's so many good lines in that song. Um, And also it's, it's a bitch. It's so good. I just love that song. I love that song. What's it about? vocal range vocally is like challenging and wonderful. Um it's just about how we can I mean when I learned it from my mom, but when I get into an argument I'm really mean and I say <laughs> mean things. And I don't want to do that anymore. And lost cause is sort of like you can you can throw stones at me, you can hate me, you can tell me I'm a loser, but don't tell me I'm a lost cause. Don't tell me that I can't be better. Please don't tell me that, that there's just zero redemption in my humanity.
1: Lovely to meet you. Thanks for making the time.
3: Yeah, thank you too.
1: I've been speaking with Pink. Her brand new album is called Trust Fall.
2: Is it me? Cause I know that you notice I kissing you with my eyes closed. Keep them open and stare at your face making sure that your eyes close. Cause I was never taught to trust somebody Nobody Is it you? Cause you pushed all my buttons and turned yourself into a trigger And it feels like I'm stuck at a party without any liquor And now the music stopped and we're not dancing There's no dancing Oh throw your sticks and stones at me But don't tell me I'm lost
1: That really incredible voice. I, I ne- you can hear my surprise that Pink has been around that long. Like, she always feels like a new artist to me, but like, she came out at the same time as Vitamin C and Jessica Simpson and, and Mandy Moore from her brand-new album Trust Fall out now that was Pink and Lost Cause on cue.
3: Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure
4: to follow us so you never miss one. My agents would call me and they'd be like, well, the director hates you. (laughs) Why did you even take this meeting? And I was like, well, I'm just I'm just asking questions. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, who this character is. And I don't want to play, you know, a two dimensional woman or I don't want to play a, a male fantasy.
1: What you hear there is Sarah Gadden, an actor who knows exactly what she wants to be, exactly what she wants to do, and it worked out. Now people come to her because they know she makes work that will make them think. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Sarah Gaddon, as you hear there, has a passion and a bit of a knack for picking projects that are deeper or, or more interesting than your average work. Like she's worked with David Cronenberg. She's done adaptations of novels by folks like Margaret Atwood and Miriam Taves. And I want to talk about this new play she's in called Yerma. She plays a woman who is trying and failing to conceive a child. And it takes place uh, over this woman's 30s, like her early 30s to her late 30s. And... When I saw that Sarah was doing this play, I guess I had some inkling that this might not just be an intellectual, artistic exercise for Sarah, that she might have some connection to the play maybe. But when she sat down and opened up, which um, as you're about to hear, she really opens up and I'm really grateful to her for doing so. I wasn't ready for how personal this story was to Sarah's own um, experience uh, Yerma is playing now at the Coal Mine Theater in Toronto until March 5th. Just a heads up, this is a conversation about uh infertility, it is a conversation about, I mean, tough relationships. Here's my conversation with Sarah Gadden. Sarah, no, thanks for being here.
4: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Always happy to be here. Nice to see you. Thank you.
1: Um, I really loved the play. I really loved your performance in it. What are you laughing at?
4: I'm like, did you? <laughs> I want to hear it all. I can't wait. I was saying before we started, I cannot wait to hear your perspective on it as a man. Why? Because I I speak to so many women after the show. A lot of women come up to me. And so, yeah, I'm always just so curious about what the dudes are out there thinking.
1: Well, I, I can tell you. Are
4: they scared? <laughs> no, but you're thoughtful. <laughs>
1: tell me where you saw the play first.
4: Um, I saw it in New York at the Armory a couple of years ago.
1: The armory is this huge, massive, literal former armory.
4: Yes, it's massive and the production was massive and it's a it was a huge, you know, million dollar, incredible theatrical, lots of, you know, the set design was this big giant glass box and it was changing props. And it, there was just – it was just such a, a high-end production and it was so – amazing. A friend of mine took me for my birthday. <laughs> and, and and afterwards, I looked at her and I said, really? You took me for my birthday to this play? Why? To mark that I'm getting older? To make me aware of my own fertility, my own mortality? It was pretty intense.
1: <laughs> who was the lead?
4: Uh, Billy Piper.
1: So Billy Piper, who was in the UK version of it as well.
4: Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, Billy Piper, who I think at that point had become, I think – unjustly a bit of a punching bag in the British press and it was uh, through this performance that she sort of like really showed off like she won every award for this it was a real tour de force
4: yeah I had no idea because I wasn't familiar with Billy Piper and my friend who took me was um, my friend Gugu Mbatha-Raw who's a, a British actress and she was like this is really after the play I was like she's amazing who is you know who is she you know And Gugu said, "Yeah, no, this is actually like a really big turn for her in her career." And I was like, "It's so interesting how women get, you know, painted by the media in certain ways, and and they have to kind of reinvent themselves or emerge from the ashes." And and then and I'm just coming to it completely fresh, looking at this brilliant performance, singing. This person's this person is a genius. It's so clear.
1: (laughs) Sure, you can say this person is a genius. It's interesting to me that you say, this person is a genius. This is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. I'm so affected by this performance. I want to do it.
4: Well, I wasn't thinking that at the time of seeing it. I wasn't thinking, and now me. You know, (laughs) I was thinking.
1: That's the name of your new podcast, by the way. I
4: was actually thinking, I'm in my early 30s. I'm inside of an unhealthy relationship. And something like this is happening to me. And it was like this struck by lightning moment that I often think great art, great theater has the ability to do is you're watching something in the most theatrical version of it. But it's hitting you at a gut level and you're having this moment where you almost feel like there's a spotlight on you as an audience member and you're thinking – Is this happening to me?
1: Can you set up for people, because people might not know the play, can you set up what your character, what she's going through so that people might understand why you were relating to it like that?
4: Yeah, Yerma, you meet Yerma at the beginning of the play. She's 33. She's just bought a house with her partner and she's decided that she wants to have a child. And then she spends the rest of the play going through her 30s, trying to have a child with a partner who's... Kind of unavailable to her, um, who's also building their career, who's in and out of her life, and she starts to struggle physically and mentally with actually having a child, and it ends up becoming an obsession for her, and it becomes ultimately her unraveling.
1: So you watched watched that story, and and I think you were saying that you're, and obviously, only tell me as much as you want to. You were sitting there. You were sort of reflecting on an unhappy relationship that you were in yourself. You were in your early thirties. You were able to relate in some way, either intellectually to this, to the story.
4: Yeah. Well, I was thinking, I want to have a child. I was, I was ready. There was something inside of my body thinking that was making me feel like I want to have a child, but I wasn't necessarily with a person who was available to me in that way, and and i was inside of the fog of trying to figure out what's happening here yeah and it it was seeing that play was the kind of beginning of an understanding that happens i think you know to women to women and i don't want to make a general statement that it's happening to all women in their early 30s but it was certainly happening to me of i want to have a family how am I going to do that? <laughs> and and it wasn't just also the relationship. It was also my job. I, I have an unconventional job. I'm an artist. And I'm reckoning in my 30s with this idea of, you know, having a successful career, having a very demanding career, but also kind of simultaneously in a way feeling punished for having that career because I don't have a mat leave. There's no financial support for me. Every single job that I take, I go to a doctor's office and they press on my stomach to make sure that I'm not pregnant, so that I can get insurance, so that I can do the job.
1: Oh, uh, f- forgive me, I didn't know that.
4: Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, totally. So <laughs> it feel it felt like
1: when you when you get a job, they'll just to make sure you're not lying, they'll take you into a room and, and make sure you're not pregnant, so that you can be insured correctly to do a job. Yes, that's gonna fuck with you, Sarah. Yeah, 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 yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. And and also, I'm in my thirties playing every other role that I get, I'm putting on a pregnancy suit and playing a woman who's pregnant. I think I did like three or four jobs back to back. And it's funny because I had this um, prosthetic, this is a tangent, but I had this prosthetic, um, chest and stomach, pregnant stomach and pregnant breasts made for me for the film Enemy that I did a long time ago, maybe it was 10 years ago. Um, and at the end of the movie they kind of they just they gave it me my pregnant torso and and I was glad because I didn't want it to be up on some you know effects wall in a studio somewhere but I I had this pregnancy torso with me in a box and I would just take it from job to job to job whenever I had to be pregnant and they would sew it in a bodysuit and I would just wear this same pregnancy suit. The same (laughs) one. Yeah. So I drove it to the Adirondacks for Black Bear. Every day I would go to work and I'd put on this pregnancy suit. And I also kind of was at a point where I wanted to have a family, but I'm grappling with all these things about how do I actually get there? (laughs)
1: <laughs> What's the psychological impact of
4: that? <laughs> um I mean it was it certainly, you know, makes you think, when is this gonna happen for me? Yeah. You know, and I want this to happen for me, and how does this happen for me? And and like I said, when you have an unconventional life, an unconventional job, yeah. there really is no blueprint.
1: You just told me what happens when you watch the play.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I was at when I watched the play. When you the watch play. the play.
1: Now you have to. <laughs> when I first met you, I've only ever seen you in very intense roles. Yeah. I was never prepared for the amount you laugh at these things. Yeah. Like you yeah. Laugh. I'm never, uh, I'm never, I'm still never prepared for it. Um, I'm a
4: really happy person. I know. I know, which is, I know. Which is counter to a lot of the roles that I inhabit. Yeah. And that's, sometimes hard for me because I have to. I have a lot of resistance at the beginning of a job where I know I am going somewhere psychologically and emotionally, and that's a part of the work that I always have to do as an actor because I get scared often because—or or it becomes a part of my imposter syndrome because I think, I'm so happy. Like, I don't want to go there, or can I go there?
1: Put that in the context of this role— What's the impact of taking this role on? What made you want to take the role on? What was interesting to you? What what made all that stuff you just told me worth it?
4: I don't know if I could take on this role if my personal life was not in order. Because when I work, I become very obsessive with what I'm doing. And when you're doing a monster role like Yerma, it takes over your life. Like Like I wake up in the middle of the night. I'm consumed by the play. I'm consumed by the process. And every night, you know, I go home to my husband who is extremely emotionally intelligent and a really beautiful person. I I go home and I feel immediately in his presence, the separation of the work and my life, which is really, really, really important. Um, but I also knew taking on the job – when Diana Bentley, who is the director of the play and co-founder of the Coal Mine Theater, when she came to me and said, "Do you want to do this play with me?" I was like, "Absolutely," because she's also a super powerful and grounded leader. You know, she's—I no, knew she was not going to be there to exploit me in any kind of way. And what I've learned as an actor is when you're playing roles that are entrenched in trauma. You have to do them with, an, with a director who is an adult and who can carry the space and the intention of the project with serious integrity. They're not there to play any mind games with you. They're not there to kind of
1: exploit you
4: or like have the kind of torture porn element of it. They're there to really be your partner and be your safety net. So I knew that Exploring this kind of material with Diana would be a safe space, which is important.
1: And you, my guess is, you've had the not that you've had the you've had.
4: The- yeah, yeah. No, I've, I definitely have had the not that, or directors that you know want to play games, or like, or even just who aren't very mature themselves, yeah. right? And, and and when you're dealing with this kind of subject matter, you have to be able to be with a director who's emotionally mature because it's not just fertility you know the pursuit of having a child that's in this play there's suicide in the play there's miscarriages in this play there's um affairs in this play there's gaslighting in this play there's so much going on Uh, in the play
1: parental detachment yeah yeah, reckoning with sibling jealousy all those trauma yeah
4: Yeah, there's a lot of trauma in the play
1: I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. What you're hearing right now is me talking to the Toronto actor Sarah Gadden. She's known for taking on really complex roles, characters she can dig around in, like in the adaptations of Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood or All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves. Her latest project is no different. She's making her stage debut in the play Yerma, playing a woman desperate to have a child. I thought the audience reaction was really interesting while I was watching the play. How many people are in that theater? I don't know. I, I want to say 100 <laughs> maybe.
4: Maybe, yeah. I mean, Not
1: many. I didn't so, expect you to have the number by the way, but not many. And, and you guys are in – the play is taking place sort of below us. Like we're all sort of gathered around. Yeah,
4: it's in a pit. We yeah. call it the pit um, and it's in the round. So the audience is all around us. Um, and you came to a preview which is really interesting because this is my first theater job. So, I'm learning ever? about ever. Yeah. So, I'm learning about the process and the journey of making a play. And and you start to learn about what the play is through the audience, through their reactions. And the first preview it was really fascinating because I've never performed in front of a live audience. So, I finished the play and the lights came up in the first preview. And there were so many women my age in the audience and I just saw their faces and they all looked like they'd been punched in the guts. And I thought, whoa, there's the play. The play is on your face. Yeah. I see the play. Yeah. So it was really, it was really interesting for me as an artist to be able to have that kind of experience. The second preview, which you came to, all of a sudden there was like this maniacal laughter going on I, I felt like from scene one yeah there was a lot There from was from scene yeah. one through scene six it was like people were just laughing and laughing but it was like it was oh, a yeah, strange laughter yeah. it wasn't like a genuine like <laughs> it, and then the lights came up at the end and i looked around the audience and i realized oh there's a lot more men in the room
1: interesting than
4: there were on the first night and I realized that there's so much misogyny in the play so much internalized misogyny and so much misogyny on display so much discussion around misogyny towards women and fertility and I was like that's what was going on in the audience that night and it was really uncomfortable misogyny that we are all living with present in the room in dialogue with the play
1: well I think I think part of it might Part of it for me was there is a discomfort in yeah. that um, when you are a, a man who has had a life that's been filled with a certain amount of ambition, mm-hmm. um, and to realize watching that play perhaps what you unconsciously have inherited mm-hmm. from a patriarchal system yeah. that even if and even if your character the character is quite liberal and quite progressive yeah. and you see that even the most liberal and the most progressive and the most thoughtful can't help but fall into some pretty
4: Oh awful yeah, we patterns. have, we have a lot of internalized.
1: Yeah. I think that was one of the things you, you, you asked me earlier, like, yeah. what did you think? I think that was one of the things that I got out of the play. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that that's like, great. Like, I'm so
4: happy to hear that. But you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they're, they're, like
1: they're not, I don't want to say it was a forgiveness, but it was, a, it was like a, a self-consciousness. Well,
4: I think that there's the, the play reckons with archetypes and, um, and power dynamics in relationships. And I think that's why it's so relatable.
1: Do you like the character?
4: I love the character. Oh, yeah. I mean, she is, to me, the ultimate heroine in the play. She's going on this journey. She's taking no prisoners, and she is relentlessly pursuing truth.
1: Relentlessly pursuing truth. What, what does that mean?
4: I think she's relentlessly pursuing truth in all of her relationships in her life and she's not accepting complacency. She's not accepting a lie. She's not accepting the withholding of love that she's experiencing from her mother or her sister or her partner.
1: Is that is that is that what drives you with these roles? Like you you talked a little bit earlier about like these are the kind of roles that I've taken on in my career. And you know I've talked about this in the past. Mm -hmm. But I was and I, I feel like every time I talk to you, I can never quite articulate how I feel about the roles you take on (laughs) when I see your name on a poster I am going to leave the theater um or the kind of cinematic experience or whatever thinking about the character afterwards
4: oh great that's great do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm
1: going to – whether it's Grace Marks and Alias Grace, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in in, in Black Bear. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen you in as many of the Cronenberg films, but people have talked to me about them mm-hmm. in the same way in the Cronenberg films. Um, and with this play, like I know I'm – I know after I leave I'm going to be reflecting on the truth, to be honest, of mm-hmm. that character. Mm-hmm. Like should I have believed her? Mm-hmm. Was she telling me the truth? was the way I saw her while I was watching it. It feels different now. Mm-hmm. Is this is – this, am I on something in, in how you choose your roles?
4: I'm drawn to characters that are very complex. And even if they're not on the page complex, I think in especially in the early part of my career, I made a name for myself making the women that I was playing complicated, even if they weren't necessarily uh, on the page, okay. even if they were just like relegated to – you know, the supporting character of, you know, a wife or a girlfriend, I was like, how can I, who is this woman? You know, I, I I can't really step into roles and people if I can't figure out who they are. Part of my work is always just deepening and deepening and deepening their meaning and their identity and yeah, who they are as women.
1: Do you ever turn down roles because they don't offer the complexity that you need?
4: Yeah, all the time. Yeah. I used to get in so much trouble in my in my 20s when I would take meetings with especially like a really specific kind of like young male director who was always perceived in the industry as very cool. And we would sit down to, you know, talk about, I'd take a meeting and and I would say, okay, but, you know, like, who is this woman? You know, why is she doing this? Well, is, why is she doing that? Well, is she doing this? Or is, she, you, is she only doing that because you think that? Oh, is that what you think? Well, why can't she do this? And should she do this? And I would ask all these questions and then I would come out of these meetings and my agents would call me and they'd be like, well, the director hates you. <laughs> why did you even take this meeting? And I was like, well, I'm just, I'm just asking questions. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, who this character is and I don't want to play – you know a two dimensional woman or i don't want to play a, a male fantasy now i just don't take those meetings <laughs> now you just don't take those. And, and and
1: you choose the roles that that are the most interesting to
4: you yeah or i fight for them
1: <laughs> it's not easy though i um that i've never seen anything quite like um this at the end of the play um and let's not spoil the end of the
4: yeah play. don't spoil the end
1: um but as we've talked about, your character has, you know, has struggled with with getting pregnant and struggled with her partner and struggled with, you know, people, the way people treat her. Typically after a play, no matter how hard it is, you, the audience gets this moment where the lead actor kind of smiles after it's over and says, everything's okay, guys. It was, it was, it was a play all along. All right. And they bow and After the play was over um, and you were taking your bow, I looked at you, Sarah, and I said, that's still there. Like even in your bow. Like I could tell it hadn't left you. You couldn't turn it off in that moment. Do you know what I mean?
4: Yeah. No, I can't turn it off. I I have to go after – I find the curtain call very difficult because I know that, again, as someone who's new to theater – And Diana was like, you need to, you know, you you have to go out there, you have to bow and you have to do it, you know, from a place that's outside of the character. But because the play ends in such an emotional high note, I'm, or not high note, emotionally intense note, I'm still inside of the work. So I need to then, after the bow, I go off and I have to come off of the work and I have a whole kind of process that I've developed in this – for this character of coming off of that work because if I don't come off of the work, then I, I i remain inside of this trauma state and then I go out into the world and it's not good for anyone.
1: What's the process?
4: Um, well, for this character, I, I go off stage. I clean myself off and I just spend – I mean it depends on the night, but I'll I'll spend time just – usually just crying, just like finishing whatever emotions are coming up inside of me. So just like mourning, crying, being inside of the grief as I wash myself and then when I reach the end of that emotion, I do some tapping work, which is uh, something that I learned about through a few different people in terms of dealing with PTSD management. Um, around my collarbone because around your collarbone is a place of existence. Um, So I I do a lot of tapping and I just – I look at myself in the mirror and I say, I am, I am, I am, I am here, I am here. And then when I feel as if I'm back inside my body, I wash my face and I do some breathing and do some stretching, and then I leave. <laughs> That's what I do for this character.
1: <laughs> What's the most meaningful thing someone has said to you after the play so far?
4: Last night an older man came up to me, a lovely gentleman. and He said, hi, "He said, you know, hi, I'm, I'm gay. And I said, hi. <laughs> cool. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I'm gay, and I never understood or really got when something, like, changed in a woman and she wanted to have a child, I didn't really understand that. Mm-hmm. And now I understand it.
1: Sarah, thanks for coming in. Always lovely to have you. Thank you. I'm still stuck on Sarah's, like, what she does to come down after, after that role. I'm still stuck on that. Uh, Yerma is playing now at the Coal Mine Theater in Toronto until March 5th. And that is it for us uh, this week. Thanks so much to everybody on the Q team who helps to make the show uh, sound any good and make me sound any good, to be honest. The producers this week are Michaela Van Kooten, Ty Callender, Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, Sarah Melton, Vanessa Nigro, Mitch Pollock, Catherine Stockhausen, Caitlin Swan, and Jennifer Warren. Our digital team is Amelia Eckball, Shuli Grossman-Gray, and Vivian Rashad. Our show's director is Matthew Murphy. Our engineer is Sam Hashemi. Our senior producer is Lise Hossein. And McKeegan is the executive producer of Q. My name is Tom Power. Pap- so so um, I want to let you know if you're listening to this on the podcast by the way congratulations for making it to the end of a podcast I I'd say I make it to the end of three podcasts a year I probably listen to a podcast every day I say I make it to this part three times a year and it's usually if I like can't reach my phone and turn it off so congratulations right off the bat number two uh Monday on the show oh, here's a little gift Monday on the show You're going to hear my conversation with Neil Young, one of our best ofs. I I mean, I was delighted about it. I didn't know if we were going to get in a fight. And we ended up having a conversation about why the world is so beautiful. So that's Monday on Q. Uh, We'll see you then later on.